For example, the Mahdi of the Shias is hidden in a cave and he has the original Holy Quran. He will appear at a time when the companions, Allah be pleased with them, will also be brought back to life and he will take revenge from them for the usurpation of the Khilafat from Hazrat Ali anhu. Likewise, with the reference to the Mahdi of the Sunnis, based upon their statements, it is not certain that he will be born to a particular family, nor is it certain that he will appear in the time of Isa. Some say that he will be born from among the Fatimids, and some say that he will be born from among the Abbasids. Still others opine, on the basis of a Hadith, that he is a man from the Ummah in general, then again, some say that the advent of the Mahdi must occur in the middle period and the promised Messiah will come after him, and they quote a hadith to support this. Others say that the Messiah and Mahdi are not two distinct individuals, but that the very Messiah is the Mahdi. To validate this contention, they quote the hadith, there is no Mahdi except Isa. As for the Dajjal, some are of the view that Ibn Sayyad indeed is the Dajjal, and he is in hiding, and shall emerge in the latter days, when in truth, that poor fellow had converted to Islam and died a Muslim, and his funeral prayer was offered by the Muslims. And some say that the Dajjal is imprisoned in a church, meaning that he is detained in some chapel and will ultimately emerge from it. This last statement was indeed correct, but it is regrettable that its meanings, despite being very obvious, were distorted. Is there any doubt that the Dajjal, which refers to the demon of Christianity, has remained incarcerated within the church for a long time, and has withheld its deceptive machinations, but has now in the latter days attained complete freedom and its shackles have been removed so that it may unleash all of the attacks destined for it? And some think that the Dajjal is not from the human race, rather it is a name for Satan. And some believe that Hazrat Isa is still alive in heaven, while some Muslim sects called the Mutazila believe in the death of Hazrat Isa. Some Sufis have long believed that the awaited Messiah refers to an Ummati, i.e. a follower of the Holy Prophet who will be born from within this Ummah. Now just ponder a little and see how much disagreement exists within this Ummah regarding the Messiah, the Mahdi, and the Dajjal. And everyone claims Ijma for his own belief in accordance with the verse. Every party rejoicing in what they have. Chapter 30, verse 33 of the Holy Quran. The truth of the matter is that when numerous disagreements arise in any Sharia, a religious law, these very disagreements inherently demand that someone should come from God to resolve them. For this indeed is the way of Allah since time immemorial. When many differences arose among the Jews, Hazrat Isa came as the arbiter for them. When disputes between the Jews and the Christians intensified, the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was sent by God, appointed as the arbiter for them. Now in this age, the world is brimming with disagreements. The Jews say one thing, whereas the Christians profess another, and aside from this, the Ummah of Muhammad is mired in internal conflicts. Meanwhile, the idolaters present their opinions against all of the others. So many new religions and beliefs have arisen that everyone seems to be practicing their own unique brand of religion. 
Therefore, in conformity with the established practice of Allah, it was essential that a hakam, arbiter, should have come to settle all of these disputes. Hence, that very hakam was bestowed the titles the Promised Messiah and the Blessed Mahdi, meaning that he was deemed to be the Messiah on account of resolving external disputes and he was proclaimed the destined Mahdi on account of settling internal conflicts. Although the established practice of Allah concerning this had been so consistent that it was not necessary to express to Ahadis that a person would appear as the Hakam, whose title would be Masih. Yet this prophecy is found in the Ahadis that the promised Messiah who will be from within this very Ummah will be the Hakam appointed by God Almighty, meaning that God will send him to remove all disagreements, internal and external, that exist. The belief upon which he will be established will be the true belief, because God would establish him upon truth, and whatever he would say, he would say with divinely bestowed insight. Further, no sect would have the right to dispute with him on the basis of their own different belief, because in that age, due to conflicting beliefs, the precepts handed down that are not expounded in the Holy Quran would become suspect. Moreover, on account of the widespread differences, all of the disputants from within or opponents from the outside would be in need of a hakam, who would establish his truth through heavenly testimony, just as it happened in the time of Hazrat Isa, and thereafter in the time of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. The very same would also occur in the time of the last promised one. Here, this practice of Allah should also be kept in mind that any prophecy from God Almighty about the advent of any great messenger inherently bears a trial for some people. For example, it was prophesied in Jewish scriptures about Hazrat Isa that he would come when Prophet Ilyas Elijah would return from heaven. This prophecy is still found in the book of Prophet Malachi. Thus, this prophecy proved to be a big stumbling block for the Jews and they still await the return of Prophet Elias from heaven. And it is essential that he should descend first and then their true Messiah will come. However, neither has Elias yet returned to the earth, nor has such a Messiah come who could fulfill this stipulation. Similarly, there was this prophecy in the Torah about the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that he would be born in the family of the Jews, meaning the children of Ibrahim al-Islam, Abraham, and that he would be raised from among them and from among their brethren. Further, all of the prophets who appeared among the Israelites understood this prophecy to mean that the prophet of the latter days would appear from among the Israelites, but ultimately that prophet appeared from among the Ishmaelites. And this issue became a serious stumbling block for the Jews. Had these words been explicitly written in the Torah that the prophesied prophet would appear from among the Ishmaelites and his place of birth would be Mecca and his name would be Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and his father's name would be Abdullah, the Jews would have never faced this trial. While these two examples are there to show that in such prophecies God intends some trial for his servants, how strange is it that our opponents, despite the many contradictions about the promised Messiah that are found in the ahadith of every sect, and while they also unanimously agree that he would be an ummati, are still content that the Messiah would certainly descend from heaven. Although this descent from the heavens itself 
is irrational and contrary to the explicit text of the Quran. God Almighty says, in response to the Quraysh's demand that the Holy Prophet should go to heaven before their very eyes and return with the book, the Holy Prophet was commanded, say, Holy is my Lord, I am not but a man sent as a messenger. Chapter 17, verse 94. Therefore, if it were included in the practice of Allah to physically raise human beings to heaven, then why were the disbelieving Quraysh replied in the negative on this occasion? Does it mean that the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was a man whereas Esau was not? And when God was hoisting Hazrat Esau to heaven, did he forget the promise of, Have we not made the earth so as to hold the living and the dead? Chapter 77, verse 26 to 27. Yet when the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was demanded to ascend to heaven, that promise suddenly recurred to him? And who has the knowledge of the Book of Allah? Knows it well that the Holy Quran has testified to the death of Hazrat Isa through its words, and the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has affirmed the same through his eyewitness testimony. That is, he has narrated that he had seen Hazrat Masih in the assembly of the deceased prophets, Moreover, in addition to these two testimonies, I have given the third testimony based upon revelation from God. If the signs of God have not appeared in my support and the heaven and the earth have not testified for me, I am a liar. But if the signs of God have appeared for my sake and the present age has testified to the need for my advent, then to reject me amounts to striking one's hand against the edge of a sharp sword. In my time alone did the solar and lunar eclipses occur in the month of Ramadan. In my time alone did the plague befall the land in fulfillment of the authentic Ahadith, the Holy Quran, and the past scriptures. In my time alone did a new mode of transportation, meaning the railway, come into operation. And in my time alone, in accordance with my prophecies, did terrible earthquakes take place. Therefore, was it not the demand of righteousness for them not to venture in my opposition? Behold, I swear by God Almighty that thousands of signs of my attestation have appeared, are appearing, and will continue to appear in the future. Had this been a human contrivance, it would have never received this much support and success, and it is contrary to equity and honesty to present only one or two incidents out of the thousands of signs that have appeared in an attempt to deceive people that such and such prophecy did not come to pass. O ye ignorant ones, and O ye who are intellectually blind, and O ye who keep yourselves afar from equity and integrity. If out of thousands of prophecy you have been unable to comprehend the fulfillment of one or two prophecies, will you be excused before God on account of this? Repent, for the days of God are nigh and such signs are about to appear that will shake the earth. These indeed are the signs of God that I present. However, reflect upon what argument you hold in this controversy, except that you put forth such ahadiths which are contradicted by the testimony of the Holy Quran, contradicted by other ahadiths, and contradicted by actual events as they are unfolding. Where is the Dajjal about whom you are spreading fear? In contrast, the Dajjal alluded to in those who have not gone astray, chapter 1, verse 7, is growing ever more powerful day by day, 
and the heavens and the earth may well nigh be rent asunder on account of his mischief. Have your hearts the fear of God, reflection upon Surah Al-Fatiha alone would have sufficed for you. Was it not possible that you misunderstood the prophecy about the promised Messiah? Are examples of such errors not present among the Jews and the Christians? Then how can you be immune from error? Also, is it not the practice of God that at times he tries his servants by such prophecies, just as the Jews and Christians were tried with the prophecy of the Torah and the prophet Malachi and the prophecy of the gospel? Do not, therefore, transgress bounds of taqwa, righteousness. Did the last prophet appear among the Israelites the way the Jews and their prophets had understood, or did Prophet Elias return physically to the earth? Certainly not. Rather, the Jews erred on both occasions. Therefore, be fearful, for God Almighty warns you in Surah Al-Fatiha, lest you become Jews. Just like your contention, the Jews were also obstinate about the literal interpretation of the Book of Allah. However, on account of them not accepting the verdict of the Hakam and not deriving any benefit from his signs, they were held to account and none of their excuses were accepted. This point is also worth remembering that the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was raised as a prophet seven centuries after Hazrat Isa, peace be upon him, because God Almighty saw that by the seventh century a great deal of perversion had developed within the Christians and Jews. Therefore, God Almighty raised the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, as the Hakam for both nations. However, the time for the appearance of the Hakam, who was destined for the Muslims, was made twice as long as that of the first period, in other words, the 14th century. This was to point to the fact that it took only seven centuries for the Christians to go astray, but the condition of the Muslims would deteriorate in twice as much time, and their hakam would appear at the head of the 14th century. Reverting to my earlier discussion, I would like to state, as I have already explained, that of the three kinds of revelations, the most perfect and complete is the one that belongs to the third category of knowledge, whose recipient is fully immersed in divine light, and that third category is designated as hakul yakin true certainty. And I have presently explained that the first kind of revelation or dream merely takes one to ilmul yakin, knowledge by inference. Just like a person who observes some smoke on a dark night and he concludes as a hypothesis that there must be a fire at that place. However, such reasoning is not at all based on certainty for it is possible that it is not smoke, for it could be a dust cloud that resembles smoke, or it could very well be smoke, albeit emanating from such a terrain that contains some volcanic material. Thus, such knowledge cannot free an intelligent person from his doubts, nor help him progress, for it is no more than a conjecture produced within his own mind. Thus, the dreams and revelations of such people which they receive merely due to their mental constitution are limited to this extent of knowledge. No virtuous conduct is found in them, such is the case of Ilmul Yaqeen. When the fountainhead of the dreams and revelations is of this very grade, its recipient's heart is mostly dominated by Satan, and that Satan sometimes in order to mislead him proceeds to put forth such dreams and revelations on account of which he, i.e. the recipient, 
proclaims himself to be the leader of the nation or the messenger, and thereby perishes as the unfortunate Jarrah Din of Jammu, who was formerly a member of Majamat, perished due to this very reason. He received satanic revelation that he was a messenger and was from among the apostles, and Hazrat Isa had given him a staff with which to kill the Dajjal, and he declared me as the Dajjal. Eventually, in accordance with the prophecy recorded in the treatise, Defense Against the Plague and a Criterion for the Elect of God, he died of plague at a young age along with his two sons. A few days before his death, he even published an article in the manner of Mubahila, prayer duel, referring to me by name, that out of the two of us may God destroy the one who is a liar. Consequently, on April 4, 1906, he along with both of his sons died of the plague. Fear God, O ye claimants of the revelation. The second state of spiritual rank may be compared to a person who on a dark and cold night perceives light from afar, and although that light helps him see the right path, it cannot repel the cold. This stage is known as Ainul Yakrin. The knower of God of this rank does have a bond with God, but that bond is not perfect. At this aforementioned stage, satanic revelations occur in abundance because such a person does not yet have the same bond with God as he has with Satan. The third stage, spiritual rank, is the one when a person on a dark night and in the time of severe cold not only finds the glow of the fire, but also enters the circle of that fire. He comes to realize that this certainly is fire, and with it, he repels his cold. This is the perfect stage with which doubt cannot coexist, and this is the stage which completely eliminates the frigidity and straightness that is intrinsic to human nature. This state is called Hakkul Yakin. Indeed, this rank is achieved only by perfect individuals who enter the circle of divine manifestations, and both their intellectual and practical states become rectified. Prior to this stage, neither the intellectual state reaches perfection, nor the practical state attains completion. This stage is attained only by those who have a perfect relationship with God Almighty. In reality, the word Wahi is truly applicable to their revelation because it is free from satanic influences. Their revelation is not at the level of conjecture, Rather, it is definitive and decisive. It is light bestowed upon them by God Almighty. Thousands of blessings accompany them and they possess true insight because they are not looking from afar. Rather, they are admitted into the circle of light. Moreover, their heart enjoys a personal bond with God. For this very reason, just as God Almighty desires for himself that he be known, so too does he desire for them that they be known by his humble servants. Thus, for this very purpose, he shows mighty signs in their help and support. Everyone who confronts them perishes. Everyone who bears enmity to them is ultimately reduced to dust. And God puts blessings in every word of theirs and their movements and in their dress and dwelling. He becomes the friend of their friends and the enemy of their enemies and presses the heavens and the earth in their service. By reflecting upon all of those victories, successes and signs that God Almighty manifests for them. It has to be admitted that they are the divine favorites, just as by reflecting upon the creations in the heaven and earth, it has to be admitted that these creations have a God. Thus, 
They are recognized by those victories, successes, and signs because they are of such abundance and of such clarity that no one else can possibly be their equal. Besides, just as God Almighty desires to inspire people's hearts with his love through his benevolent attributes, in the same way he invests their, i.e. his chosen ones, moral attributes with such miraculous appeal that hearts are drawn towards them. They are a wonderful group who come to life after dying and gain after giving up. They tread the path of sincerity and devotion with such zeal that God too comes to deal with them in a unique manner, as if their God is a unique God of whom the world is unaware. God Almighty treats them in a manner which is only for them and not for anyone else, as illustrated by Ibrahim, may peace be on him. Since he was truthful and a loyal servant of God, therefore God helped him at the time of every tribulation. When he was cast into the fire unjustly, God made the fire cool for him. Similarly, when an unscrupulous king had ill intention towards his wife, God afflicted those hands with which he intended to fulfill his impure intentions. And then when Ibrahim, under divine command, left his beloved son, who was Ismail, in such mountainous terrain as had neither food nor water, God produced for him water and food out of nowhere. Obviously, there are many people who are killed by cruel people, cast into fire and drowned in water, and yet even though they are also virtuous, no help from God Almighty reaches them. There are many such people whose women are raped by wicked people, and there are many others whose children die of thirst, craving for water in some wilderness. But no well of Zamzam springs forth for them from the unseen. Thus, it is understood that God Almighty treats everyone in accordance with the relationship that they have cultivated with Him. Though the loved ones of God also suffer hardships, divine help is prominently with them and divine honor does not tolerate that they be humiliated and disgraced, and his love for them does not tolerate that their names be effaced from the world.